The following podcast is sponsored by SuperheroStuff.com. Sci-Fi For Me Radio presents Jason Hunt, Timothy Harvey. This is H2O. Welcome, everyone, to this, our 114th episode of H2O. My name is Jason Hunt. Joining me on the phone, Mr. Timothy Harvey. Hello there. Mainly because uh, we're recording very late, and we're in the middle of prep for Planet Comic Con. Very, uh, very exciting times, uh, to be sure, for some people. Uh, fans of of genre can see. Uh, let's see, Jenna Coleman's going to be here. Stan Lee's going to be here. Edward James Olmos. Um, I think isn't Arthur Darvel uh, going to be in attendance this year? I believe so, yeah. Yeah, Alan Tudyk had to cancel uh, because of scheduling conflicts, uh, probably because now suddenly he's got a show uh, that went to series on NBC. So I imagine he's got some commitments there, uh, had, to, had to put in an appearance at the Upfront in New York. So uh, so he's not going to be here, but uh, yeah, we're quite a few names. Tom Kane, of course, is going to be back. Barbara Eden's going to be there. Um it's going to be a good show, I think. Yeah, Kevin Smith, Jason Mewes, Danielle Panabaker. So, looking forward to it. Tonight, our episode, uh, our topic uh, suggested from uh, Doug in California. The suspension of disbelief. I think Gene Roddenberry called it the willing suspension of disbelief. This idea that you can accept at least for the duration of the story, things that normally would not be so. I guess that's a that's a broad way of putting it. Sure. And the idea is that, you know, for for the next hour as you watch Star Trek, you can believe that we can f- travel at warp drive. You can believe we have phasers, transporters. Um uh, you know, any any number of of movies that have aliens in them, uh, your your suspension of disbelief calls for you to accept that there are aliens in this movie and not look sideways at it. And there are some there are some films that do this better than others. There are some films that kind of push it to the limit a little bit, and you end up looking at it going to give it the side eye and wait a minute well in the worst case it also pulls you right out of the film yeah um and i think that you can have that in in television and in film a lot more than you than you have it in comic books or novels um a lot of it has to do of course with just the fact that they're very very different formats um the novel gives you a chance as a writer to explain a situation in a way that can take the, the suspension of disbelief and make it a little easier pill to swallow. Um, because you, have, you can sit there and give backstory that you don't have time to do in a 42-minute TV episode or an hour-and-a-half film. Or, you, know, you can, can worldcraft in a way that you can sit there and go, oh, okay, so that, that's how it works. But you get into films and television, and you really do only have so much time. And it's a lot easier to write yourself into a corner 
that requires hand waving them to get you out. Yeah. Uh, well, and and, and and there there's that, and there's other times when you don't manage to get yourself out, and that's even worse. Right. You know, you ha- you have this uh, whether it's whether it's in the writing or whether it's in the post production. If you're talking in terms of a TV or a film, um, where you you know you look at something like Green Lantern or Man of Steel or Batman vs Superman, where the editing is such that you don't get a cohesive story. Um, or you get bits and pieces of several stories that you can you can see the nugget. You can see where the story was going to go, but it doesn't quite get there. And, you know, uh, you know Star Trek V is, is another one where you have some elements of the story that don't quite measure up. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Star Trek because one of the things that immediately pops to mind uh, with the with the new movies, um, there are certain assumptions that you have to make, you know, because of the, the alternate timeline, all these different things. Um, and to some degree, there's kind of a through line that, that somewhat works. But then you get into the second film and you have things like Super Blood that basically brings people back from the dead, and you have, you know, uh, well, certainly in the first film as well, but especially in the second one, um, these, you know, extreme far-range transporters that essentially make spaceships even, you know, completely useless. Um, and then they're ignored. They're completely just going, oh, we're just not going to pay any attention to that. They're, they're, brought in, they're brought in to make a plot thing happen. Uh, it would completely change the universe that you're existing in and they're completely ignored and it literally yanks you out of the film. Um, because it's, it's, they basically wrote themselves into a corner that required, um, something ludicrous to get them out of. Yeah. Uh, and it's, <clears throat> pardon me, or it's something like, uh, Prometheus where the film Unfortunately, the film hits you in the face with things that beggar belief from everywhere from, you know, a a crew of quote-unquote scientists who don't practice science, um, you know, or giant rolling, crashing spaceships that people don't run away from the rolling spaceship thing. Uh, Or, you know, and that's sort of just... If you're if you're watching this big dramatic film and you're laughing or you're groaning because you know you <clears throat> inside the the rules of the film uh, that world that they've built nothing actually makes sense uh, you know you're you're doing yourself and and, and the people watching it a big disservice. Well, and the other thing too is is your you know if if you do that without acknowledging that your audience is smart enough to understand what's going on or if you do something that is so so completely unbelievable it almost insults your audience 
you run that kind of a risk as well because you you do something and the entire audience sits there and goes, really? Mm-hmm. And, and and not only do they does that pull them out of the out of the out of the story, but it also pulls them out of their seat, and you have people leaving. Uh, leaving with a negative impression. I think that's one of the reasons why Batman vs Superman had an eight, almost an eighty-five percent week-to-week drop in box office from week one to week two because people coming out of the theater were so disappointed by the film because it did that very thing. It did things that were so dumb and so out of character for Superman and Batman. That even non-comic book people sat there and said, that's not Superman and Batman. Why are they killing people? This story makes no sense. How does Lex Luthor know who Clark is? Wait a minute. Martha? That's all it took? You know, there's all sorts of things that are problematic in that film. And... A lot of that is, and this is something that goes back to to a discussion that we had before, trusting your audience. It's all of a piece, uh, really, because if you don't trust your audience, then you're not going to put the smart things in there. You you either over-explain or you oversell something or you, you gloss something over with the assumption that your audience isn't going to care anyway. Oh, they won't get it. They won't care. They won't notice. Yeah, you know, you you are you're either assuming that the audience is too dumb to get it, or you don't care if they get it or not. Either way, you're making a huge mistake in terms of what the audience is willing to put up with. Oh yeah, well, and I think that you know you can have it. You can have little tiny blips, you know, moments where things are are a little off. Um, uh, Star Trek The Voyage Home. Star Trek IV. Yeah. Um, as uh, we go back in time, spoiler alert, uh, the crew of the Enterprise goes back in time to save some whales. Um, and you have Kirk reacting to 20th century swearing Um is if he doesn't understand how it works. Even though we've heard the character swear in the course of the films. Yeah. It's cute. It's funny. It fits the overall lighthearted tone of the film. But it's also completely out of character, not actually accurate to the world of the characters that we've already established. Uh, but it, it, it kind of goes past you because it is that kind of movie, and they've earned the, the, the you know that series of films. Those actors, those characters, have earned a little bit of wiggle room from the audience to sit there and say, "Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, we get it. It's okay. that's fun." Um, and then you have something like uh, Batman versus Superman, where. They haven't really earned that, um, and so you don't give them the benefit of the doubt or that that ability to sit there and go, okay, yeah, all right. In this case, you know, it's a it's a common problem actually in a lot of horror films that you you know 
you end up with with villains who are you know basically indestructible and can constantly catch a running teenager by walking and you know some of that fits into the, to just or, the or, or the shuffle or shuffling oh yeah <laughs> that too um, and, and some of it fits into like the tropes of the genre, and some of it fits into the, the shared kind of smile and nod uh, for the folks who watch horror films for the for the fun of the scare. That you know that jump feeling that you get, you know, that, that is very energetic. Um, but you know, it is, you also can have films that completely lose the scariness because of that, and. There's been some great examples, you know, one of the one of the worst horror films of all time, and uh, a sequel to one of the greatest horror films of all time. You know, this is The Exorcist Two. Um, oh yeah. Nobody, nobody believed that film. Nobody, nobody appreciated the the level of tension that you got out of the first one, um, and. It's it's a it's a unfortunately it's part of a sequelitis where you actually build up the first the first film is so good that you have got to get out that sequel out but it can become a very uh, a very unfortunate state of affairs. Well, and and you know there are. A number of films. I mean, we could go through all all sorts of films in either horror or science fiction, or fantasy for that matter, where things like that happen, where you have those elements that pop you out. I mean, we could run through a list. Star Trek, um, uh, uh, Star Trek Five has has them. Um, you talk about you mentioned Prometheus, um, Batman vs Superman for me, the first JJ uh, Trek. Completely took me out of the story uh, on a number of occasions. The first one was seeing the Grand Canyon in Iowa, and then seeing the uh, a Constitution class starship being built in Iowa. And oh, guess what? Captain Kirk grew up in Iowa. Oh, what a coincidence! Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Um, you know, and you have that Top Gun moment where he comes up in, on a motorcycle. In the 23rd century, in Iowa, where they're building the starship. I mean, it, it, it was just one thing after another after another. And then you have him as a cadet, not even graduating at this point in the story of the movie. And Pike makes him a first officer, and suddenly he's the captain of the flagship. And, and he never graduated Starfleet Academy. I mean, that's something that people overlook countless times. Looking at that film, I'm I'm sitting here thinking, wait a minute, that's that's not how it happened. And right. and the whole movie took me out of that story universe so much that I never saw Into Darkness. Well, and I think that what's interesting about that is that they actually gave themselves a reason to tell the story differently because it's an alternate timeline. The events of Kurt's birth were different uh, in this alternate timeline. There's all these different things that basically gives you a blank slate that you can sit there and, and tell a new story for that character. 
from the ground up. And yet, they managed to squander it by hitting you with these repeated things that just don't make any sense. And then, of course, yes, culminating with you didn't graduate from the academy, you were actually uh, suspended, and now you're the captain of a starship. And okay, fine, if you want to you, you squint at it and tilt your head just the right way, we can sit there with a the battlefield promotion. But yeah, but not not over, that much. I mean, in, no, anytime you get I, a yeah battlefield promotion, I mean, though one one or two ranks, maybe. Well, but even even you know even if you you can look at it and, and let them get all the way up to captain after it's done, after they've won, he goes back to being a cadet. That's how the military works, and so yeah, I mean it's. It's exactly that kind of thing. When you get into something like Into Darkness, where you have, uh, you know, the unfortunate thing about it is that Into Darkness actually has a fairly solid core of a storyline that actually has nothing to do with remaking Wrath of Khan. I'll have to take your word um, for it. Well, I mean, yeah, and, then, and you know, it's okay. Um, but basically, the storyline there is is that they know the Klingons are out there. Um, there's a, a militant wing of Starfleet that believes that they have to strike first and wipe the Klingons out to protect the Federation. And there's the larger, you know, the larger Starfleet that you know doesn't see it that way. They want exploration and diplomacy and all those things. Right. And that's that's the actual through line of the story and from you know- beginning to end. That's that's the actual plot of Star Trek Into Darkness. Did you, However, did you ever did you ever read the the novel uh, Dreadnought? I did. Do, do, does it does it strike you that that Into Darkness bore quite a bit of similarity to that story? Well, there are there are some similarities, um, and. It's also it's also kind of an old story, not in in any event. You know, it's it's the clash of the diplomat versus the military. Um, it's the those are the fight between the idealist and the pragmatist. Um, and if that had been the story, if that had if that had what had been what we had had in that film, it would have played a lot better. But on top of that, we layered on Khan and John Harrison and all the things that go with it. Right. And on top of that, we drop on uh, a transporter that can take you across the galaxy. Um, you've got, uh, you know, Khan's blood can cure radiation poisoning. And by the time they, by the time we actually get to the scene where we've inverted the, the end of Wrath of Khan, so Kirk is the one who who goes into the warp core and gets the radiation exposure. In the process, um, defying the actual laws of physics and leverage to make the repair, because he didn't have any leverage, and so he couldn't move the thing he moved, because physics. Um, but... 
which is, again, suspension of disbelief, and no, you can't do that. Right. Well, but you look by the at... time you get to that, by the, by the time you get to that, and, and, you know, he's basically died, and McCoy brings him back with the magic blood, they're, the characters are basically looking right at the audience and saying, yeah, yeah, we know. It's it's that it's that kind of moment in the film where they like yeah what do you know brought you back to life okay let's go you know that's basically it. there's no there's there's nothing to it beyond the surface level of you know, here's the thing okay I right well and the other thing too is you know you look at something you talk about you know the physics of of something. You know, uh, Captain America: Civil War has a moment like that. It has has a moment where, if you squint and look really hard, it it could you know there there are pieces of that with Captain America's shield where it shouldn't do anything any of the things that it does, and Spider Man actually makes the comment and and it doesn't really necessarily break the fourth wall but it lampshades it where you know this is this is that trope called lampshading where he basically says that thing defies all the laws of physics right. nudge nudge wink wink and you know not only does it give spidey a, a, a cute line but it also acknowledges in story yeah we know it's the thing Funny thing too, I, as as an aside, I ran across a thing on Pinterest, uh, looking through all of our cosplay. Our Pinterest board, for those of you who don't know, is all cosplay, and so I get a bunch of stuff um, related to Marvel, DC, video games, and all that other stuff that don't necessarily have to do with cosplay. But a lot of it is headcanon stuff. We talked about this on on level seventy seven. But I ran across one the uh, yesterday, I think it was, talking about Captain America's shield. And uh, it was it was an analysis. Somebody finds it fascinating, and it's and it and it speaks to to Steve Rogers' character. He said at the very beginning, before he ever got any of his powers, his first act was to drop onto a grenade in boot camp mm-hmm. to save everybody else, and then once he has his powers. His weapon of choice is a shield. It's not a gun, it's not a sword, it's not not a laser rifle or a, or a knife or uh, whatever fancy whatever doodad thing. It's a shield is his is his weapon. And somebody said it's very interesting and it's really interesting way of looking at it because I never had before considered it before. But his weapon is a defensive weapon. Yeah. And and it's it's those kind of little things that that when an audience can get can pull those pieces out on their own the story holds up. You know, there are things in there that maybe the writers didn't even know were there. But if you do your job well enough and you tell your story well enough, the audience can fill in those things like that. They can add those pieces, and it still works. Whereas if you get pieces that don't make sense, that can't be explained away, or can't be reasoned out, 
then you have even more of a problem with the suspension of disbelief because if somebody comes in and says, that didn't make sense, and then they start to think about it and they realize this is other thing that doesn't make sense, and then that leads to this other thing that doesn't make sense, and then the whole thing falls apart. And then you have an 85, right. 85% drop from week to week in your box office. Well, and I think that's that's a real problem for the... Even, even in the world of superheroes and fantasy films or science fiction films, if you are accepting whatever the basic premise is, warp drive or aliens or demons or orcs or whatever, you have to be consistent within the world that you've created. You have to, you have to make that world believable. You have to have a place for those characters to inhabit that makes sense. And if you can't make that happen, then your audience is not going to be engaged. They're not going to enjoy it. They're not going to have a good time. Um, Civil War is an interesting example because the comic book required that you had Tony Stark basically act like a supervillain and become more and more of a supervillain as he went along. Yeah, You had to believe that one of the founding members of the Avengers, a superhero, would so enthusiastically and obsessively embrace the idea that superheroes couldn't have secret entities, that they had to be government agents, that they had to be, you know, uh, registered or they became criminals, uh, that he would do things like clone Thor, um, and which, you know, is, is a scene in the comic book that ultimately leads to, you know, another hero dying. Because of that, it's, it's these things that it might have made for, for decent sales, but it also betrayed the character in a way that upset a lot of people for good reason. Right. The thing about the movie, which I thought was really odd, is that I don't think Steve's argument makes any sense. Oh? They make it, well, yeah, because if you think about it, his argument is that these incredibly powerful beings don't need oversight. These incredibly powerful beings shouldn't, should be allowed to go wherever they want, do whatever they want, because they're the ones who are best capable of serving the greater good. I don't think that was his argument. I think his argument was, the impression that I got was, these these politicians, because he, he made the point that, and, and we hear this a lot in the arguments nowadays, just with any kind of scandal at the UN. I mean, the United Nations is rife with this, where you have people, you know, politicians that are working their own agendas. And Steve rightly points out where where the political agendas could interfere with the Avengers being able to help someone, then that's that's a matter of politics trumping what's right. And well, you know, the, problem, to stand... the problem with that argument, though, the problem with that argument, though, is that Iron Man is an army, and right. he's an army who can go wherever he wants over international lines violate international law, kill 
whoever he wants. And there are no repercussions. And in the real world, which this film very much puts... This film, more than a lot of the other Marvel films, goes into the real world in a way they haven't gone into before. Quote-unquote, the real world. Right. right. Um, and if you... If once... And this you know, we talked about before, about that's the biggest problem that the Man of Steel and... and and Batman versus Superman is, is, you know, you root this stuff in the real world, there's consequences. It's the same consequence here. If you are going to accept that these folks are traveling across international lines and attacking citizens, whether they're bad guys or not, they know they're bad guys. Nobody else knows they're bad guys. It's, it's the problem of staring directly at a superhero film. Or a superhero story, we make we the part of the suspension of disbelief that we give those stories is that if you look at them in a real world context, these guys are terrifying. If you are if you are a sovereign government anywhere, and the Avengers come into your country and destroy somebody's castle or somebody's hidden bunker, they've technically committed a war crime. They've invaded you. Right. And that's, that's where Steve's argument falls apart. Because in the world that they are living in, the world that they established they're living in, a world with Ultron and aliens invading New York, and the body count that ends up accruing, there has to be some regulation, some oversight of the Avengers. And what's interesting is that so much of the Avengers and the MCU kind of, especially with the Avengers films themselves, came out of um, the ultimate line. The Avengers, as we got them in the first Avengers film, that team looks right. an awful lot like the ultimate Avengers. Right. And in that, they were a government team. They were they were government-sponsored, government-funded, and, I mean, Steve's right, don't misunderstand me, uh, because, especially in the world of the Marvel Universe, far more so than the real world, uh, supervillains end up in government all the time in the Marvel Universe. Uh, <laughs> Norman Osborn ended up the director of S.H.I.E.L.D. Right. Uh, before he renamed it. Um, so, but at the same time, Steve's wrong because, you know, what could the vision do? If the vision, if the vision went nuts, you know, cybernetic insanity, what could he do? How much danger could he be if the Hulk got dropped? Oh, I don't know. Anywhere. Um, <laughs> like in Avengers 2. Or like in Fantastic Four. <laughs> well, in any of these things. You have to, so, so, for all that uh, Steve's concern about the politics, you know, uh, there's a very clear point made that the governments of the world sat there and went, um, you guys scare us. Right. We need to know that you can be controlled. You can be reined in. 
and, and that's it, one of the problems with superhero films and superhero stories is that we assume and we allow this to be our suspension of disbelief that we're they're going to do the right thing which is how we can end up with stories like the comic book Civil War or the, or the situation that happened in, in the film, which is unintended consequences, unintended casualties. And um, it, it, in isn't, the real it, world, isn't it interesting, though, that Civil War and Batman vs. Superman essentially tell similar types of stories? You have mm-hmm. the, the super-powered being being called into question, being called to account for the damage and destruction he's done. And you have somebody who sits there and says, you know, we must rein this guy in. We have to get a lid on this guy before he decides he wants to just take over. And, you know, Batman is pretty much in the super is in the Iron Man corner where Superman would be the Captain America analog. Um, And. You look at the two different stories side by side, and one tells that core story much better than the other one. Well, because Batman vs. Superman doesn't actually tell you that story. It gives lip service to it. Yeah. And it gives lip service to it for about five minutes. It actually could have been a very interesting film if it had, A not immediately taken Batman from I'm concerned about this to must kill him, um, which is a mistake. And immediately Uh, after that, Martha. Well, you know what? Martha, Martha, of, of 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 the things that bother me about that film, Martha is low on the list. Right. Um, because I am, I am much more willing, suspension of disbelief, to accept that the name would give Bruce a momentary pause because it was unexpected. It came out of nowhere. Yeah. The problem is, is that I have to suspend my disbelief to believe that Clark would say Martha instead of my mom or my mother. Right. And that doesn't work. <laughs> but the film would have been so much. The film could have been so much easier, I think, to to explore neat places if we actually did have the question of, okay, Metropolis happened. Yes, people died. Yes, he saved the world from an alien invasion. We have compare contrast. We have you know, there's a contradiction here. He's still scary. How do we deal with that? That could have been an interesting story about for a series that is trying to root superheroes in the real world. Asking the question, what is the place of Superman in the world as we are living in it? Right. You know, you could have, that could have been a really cool story. That's not what we got. But um, we, we get, you know, we get the hearing part of the hearing, and then it's all gone. Yeah. Um, Speaking I would have actually, I would have, I would have liked that movie. Yeah. Speaking of all gone, uh, my, my liquid sustenance is all gone, and it's time to take a break, <laughs> because I need more. 
So we are we are going to uh, we are going to pause for a moment and let you hear from our sponsor, SuperheroStuff.com. They are purveyors of fine licensed merchandise, things from DC Comics and Star Wars and Doctor Who and Godzilla and Transformers and Star Trek and all sorts of fun stuff. And in mm-hmm. our next episode, we are going to be giving away a hero box from SuperheroStuff.com. Um, so be listening for the way that you can qualify for that. And if you have thoughts on, uh, the suspension of disbelief, don't forget you can send us an email, h2o at sci-fi4me.com, and we will continue our discussion of suspension of disbelief, uh, if you can believe it, right after this break. This is Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Where can you get the latest cool superhero and sci-fi merchandise? SuperheroStuff.com! From t-shirts to keychains to cookie jars and everything in between. Superhero Stuff has added more buyers to the staff, which means more stuff, which means more for you to choose from. And don't forget the Hero Box, the must-have superhero mystery box. A $70 value, just $49. Visit SuperheroStuff.com today and gear up with your favorites. SuperheroStuff.com! Where heroes shop. I'm meteorologist Brian Busby. If you're traveling to a convention this weekend, especially if you're a cosplayer, it helps to know what the weather's going to be like. Rain and fur don't mix very well, now do they? That's why every week, Sci-Fi For Me gives you the weather forecast for every city hosting a convention. Those we have on our list, anyway. And that's worldwide, not just in the United States. It's part of our commitment to bring you content you won't find anywhere else. Just click on the Conventions tab over at SciFiForMe.com, your portal to the science fiction multiverse. Whoa, where'd you get that shirt? Bought it at the convention last week. It's an atomic cotton design. Atomic cotton? Yep, they got t-shirt designs from sci-fi, horror, cult films. All the shirts were really unique and fun. I had to get one. I gotta wait for another convention, though. Nope, atomiccotton.com. I ordered a shirt. Shipping was super fast. Atomic Cotton, where Erica and Zach combine their passion for art and film to create wearable art. All original, made with a love for the genre. Coming to a convention near you very soon. Or find them on the web at atomiccotton.com. Atomic Cotton. Shirts and art for fans by fans. Star Wars fans, McKenna Riley here inviting you to join me for the latest news, rumor, and innuendo from a galaxy far, far away. Salacious Crumbs only on Sci-Fi For Me TV. Back on H2O, Jason Hunter here along with Timothy Harvey. Hello. And we are talking about the suspension of disbelief. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, you can always send us an email, h2o at sci-fi for me.com, or you can leave a comment on all the various different social media uh, where we are. And I want to I want to look at a couple of a couple of them uh, we haven't mentioned yet. Uh, Back to the Future being one of them, where there is a point in that first story where if you're not willing to go along with it, it could completely it could it could start to unravel. And, you know, besides the idea of the flux capacitor and the idea of time travel just in general, but when you get to the end and Marty loops back in 10 minutes before he left, and granted, he's not occupying the same space in the same time, but now there's two of them. And that, that... one niggling question has never been addressed officially in canon. You have another Marty. Well, 
And and if you stop and think about it too hard, you have another Marty, and nobody nobody knows anything about this kid. So it you know that's that's one of those where you know even even Back to the Future, even a script a story as as near perfect as Back to the Future has a couple of places where it could you know you you could look at it sideways and and come away with it with a different with a different thought. Well, yeah, I, I also think that, that there's a certain there's a certain latitude that we give certain kinds of storytelling. And in the end, um, Back to the Future is a comedy. And we give comedies a certain amount of leeway for <laughs> for uh, contradictions in in stories that we don't necessarily give it. If, it. if it's a science fiction film or a fantasy film or a horror film or a superhero film, um, we actually are looking at it to be more consistent and more have the logic internally hold up than in a comedy film. And I think maybe that's because we're asking the audience to, to suspend all their disbelief in a larger sense, um, cover all, uh, a much uh, broader spectrum of things to, you have to accept. You know, even, even in a comedy about time travel, you know, the first word there is comedy about time travel. Um, and so we give it we give it more legally because we're we're there to be we're there to laugh we're there to be entertained versus there to think or uh, and not to say not to say that Back to the Future can't make you think but you know what I mean right well and the other thing too is if if you're I was thinking about you know the 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 comedy of the absurd you know you look at something like Blazing Saddles or or Young Frankenstein or um, well, even even the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension, where you know willing suspension of disbelief is key to everything. But even if you don't believe that any of it's possible, it's still a fun romp because they know what kind of story they're telling. Mm-hmm. You know, they're in on it, and the audience is in on it. And and when you go in. You know, when your writers understand that the audience is in on the gag, it makes it uh, a, a, a much more enjoyable experience all the way around. And you're not questioning the fact that none of this is believable in, in any way, shape, or form. Right. And I think that uh, that makes all the difference. Um, if there is... So, like I said, there's a there's a danger to rooting any story too much in the real world because then you apply real world logic to it. It's easier it, in some respects. It's easier in a science fiction film uh, where the premise is you know, hey, to have a science fiction film, you have to have certain science fiction premises. And often, not always, obviously, but often that involves interstellar travel 
which if you ask a astrophysicist will tell you is really, really hard. You know, the idea that we're going to develop a warp drive uh, that's going to be able to make it possible for us to go from planet to planet without massive time dilation effects and, you know, completely, completely mucking around with, you know, everybody's age in a way that is going to be confusing and problematic, you know, is something we just you have to accept in a science fiction context. If you're going to have that kind of travel, you all have to smile and nod and accept that we've come up with the hand wavium thing, whether it's warp drive or hyperspace or whatever it is, that you can do that. Because otherwise, you're talking about months or years or decades or centuries of travel. So we all smile and nod and accept that that's okay. To get from point A to point B, we've got to sit there and go, okay, we've got this thingy. The thingy what makes our ships go. Um, or a transporter, which if you stare directly at the transporter idea, it's a murder box. <laughs> Do not stare directly at the transporter idea. Teleportation is a, you know, uh, mechanical teleportation. Well, and they even they even address that in one of the old uh, in one of the old novels, uh, Spock Must Die by James Blish, uh, where a transporter accident duplicates Spock, and your your uh, the beginning of the book, uh, McCoy and Scotty are having an argument about the transporter, the fact that you know McCoy is sitting there thinking, okay, well, say I step into the transporter, it. It basically destroys me, and a copy is made on the other side. So am I still me, mm-hmm. or am I just the copy? And Kirk's attitude was basically is, you know, you know, you know, McCoy's question is, do I still have a soul? Am I still a person? Am I still me? And Kirk says, well, the fact that you are, are still able to ask that question and have the philosophical debate seems to be its own answer which is kind of a little hand wavium but it does it does go back to that whole you know you have to be willing to accept the fact that this the, these conditions apply in this story and okay let's go forward with it we're not going to explain it we're just it just is and some right. and some think, stories do be, do that better than others well uh, you you have here's here's two examples of where it was handled really really well um, in uh, the prestige, that's actually one of the major plot points, um, where the teleportation machine that Tesla, the late lamented David Bowie, um, develops, is it makes a copy, an exact copy. It's a it's a it's a transporter, um, but you have the original and the copy, and that the core of the story and the horror of the story is that he, the character is killing one of them every single night he's performing. And that's really disturbing. Um, but it looks, it, it looks directly at the question in that, that, that's there. Uh, the doctor who episode, Second to last episode of this of this most recent season, uh, Heaven Sent, 
you know, the doctor willingly kills himself, or or basically, well, he's 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 willingly accepts his death and destroys his body to release the copy of himself that's in the buffer of the teleportation machine that brought him there over and over and over again to get to where he needs to go. And it's chilling. It's a, you know, it's, he's, it's, it's directly staring and discussing the core issue that we willingly ignore when we're watching Star Trek. And that's one of those examples where it's done really well. Try the balancing act between having those things that require you to suspend your disbelief and then somewhere else staring directly at the thing and talking about it and have those two exist, um, maybe not in exactly in the same show or in the same story, but in the same genre and still work because we make... We know if you you know if you know the history of Star Trek, you know that the transporter came about because they realized it would be too expensive to show the ship landing every episode, and so we need to have a way to get our characters down to the planet without having all the flying around special effects stuff going on. Right, and the other part of that was they hadn't they hadn't built a shuttlecraft prop yet so they had that obstacle as well there was no way to get them down to the planet in a ship because from a production standpoint they hadn't built anything they could land right so it's the break I mean, so it's the, the other thing real world need in terms of making the show that led to the transporter right and so because it also came around at a time in storytelling on television where we weren't looking to have those contradictions or those areas that don't make a lot of sense. We, we weren't looking at entertainment that way. The, uh, the audience, what the audience expects, what the audience wants, what the audience requires from a story changed. Has has changed and will continue to change. Um, each generation expects something different from the kinds of stories that are out there. Um, you know, we've talked before about the fact that you know internal continuity, uh, story arcs, and things not contradicting stuff that happened you know a week ago or two weeks ago or last season or whatever. Um, that's a relatively recent invention requirements for television and films. We didn't used to want need that. Um, and so it becomes this you know uh, interesting game where where we can go back and look at this stuff a lot of, and like we were talking about with the on the head cannon. You go back and you look at this stuff and go, well now hang on. Let's think about this for a minute, you know. Yeah. And uh, but because it, it's also it's also something that it doesn't mean you can't still enjoy those old films um, or 
those old stories, whether book or comic book or, or television show or movie, that doesn't hold up from staring directly at it. I think now, because, because audiences expect that, it's harder and more important, certainly more important, for storytellers to actually trust their audience and treat them as if, you know, the story matters. Right. And they don't always do that. Not always. But there are some that are better at it than others. And uh, sure. and and some movies get it right. Some movies not quite so much. Um, I tell you, let's 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 put it to the audience. Let's have you, those of you who are listening, share with us uh, your thoughts. H two O at sci-fi for me dot com. Let us know what movies, what movie, what movies. I mean, you give us a list if you want. Uh, movies that pushed the boundaries of suspension of disbelief too far. Which movies out there did you see that made you sit there and, and it just completely took you out of the film and you had to look at it with a jaundiced eye and say, hang on, that doesn't work. What, what, I mean, for me, it's J.J. Trek more than anything else. Batman vs. Superman is, is another one. But there, there have there have got to be other films out there that make you um, look askance at at the story. So we'd like to know from you what what films did it to you? What films kicked you out of the story enough that you you had to sit back and and you started to think too much about it? H two O at sci fi for me dot com, or you can leave us comments. And, uh, of course, we're on all the social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, Google+, YouTube, Tumblr, and Twitch. Uh, now, for you video gamers, uh, we do gameplay on Sunday afternoons from 12 to some time, depending on how many people we've got uh, streaming. So uh, you can check that out. And also, of course, uh, the latest news over at SciFiForMe.com. Don't forget, episode 115 next week. It is our 100th episode with Superhero Stuff as a sponsor. And so we will be giving away a hero box to one lucky listener. Uh, we will give you the mechanism for that. Uh, we'll be recording it live out at Planet Comic Con this weekend uh, here in Kansas City. So... Uh, be listening for that. I want to thank Doug in California for the topic suggestion tonight. And uh, that's going to do it for us. We're going to head out and prep for our convention weekend. Uh, so, Timothy Harvey, thanks very much for joining, sir. Always a pleasure, sir. All right, and that's going to do it for us. My name is Jason Hunt. On behalf of all of us at Sci-Fi for Me, uh, thank you very much for listening. Check out our other uh, check out our other shows over on iTunes. And we will be back with another episode of H2O next week. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi for Me Radio. Copyright 2016 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media. This is Sci-Fi for Me Radio.